Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the What's Holding You Back January Writing Challenge edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now this month, we are live talking about everything that might hold a writer back from producing the work they want to write and how they might overcome those roadblocks. Today, we get to hear from two amazing writers, Allison Amond and Hank Philippi Ryan. Good morning, you two. Thank you so much for being with us. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Morning. I've gotten them up too early. <laughs> you have. We're talking about that we need to do a midnight novelist, and I think I might do that. So Allison Amond is the author of four award-winning books, including her short story collection, Things That Pass for Love, and three novels, Stations West, a finalist for the Oklahoma Book Award, as well as A Nearly Perfect Copy and Enchanted Islands, both published by Doubleday. Allison lives in New York City, where she teaches creative writing at Lehman College in the Bronx and at the Red Earth MFA. Hank Philippi Ryan is the USA Today bestselling author of 15 psychological thrillers. Actually, is it 16 with the one coming out? I just sent in book 16. So book 16 is at the editor and on time and only 20,000 words too long. You know, I had to say 16 instead uh-huh. of 15 because if it was only 15, then yeah, that's that. but 16 puts you over the top. So Hank has won five Agathas, five Antonys, and the coveted Mary Higgins Clark Award. She's also an on-air investigative reporter for Boston's WHDH-TV with 37 Emmys and dozens more journalism um, honors. Her newest is the page-turning standalone thriller One Wrong Word, which will be released next month. It'll be released, what, February 2nd? So February, yes, there's a secret pre-launch February 2nd, but it's the launch day actually is February 6th, which okay. is just looking closer and closer up. Yeah, because we were trying to figure out if it was actually next month. Okay, so everyone, you can participate in the chat. You can echo some of the issues that our writers have as well. You can also offer your own two cents for fixes um, if you wish. Uh, we've got two questions today. They are rather different. Um, so we're going to be talking about two very different things today. So the first question I received in written form, and it comes from Elaine, and it's about working on a series. And I know a lot of people have questions about working on series. So she says, I'm working on the third book in what I hadn't attended, intended to be a series. Book one, Roundabout, about a 68-year-old dance teacher who's just lost the love of her life and isn't sure he loved her, virtually wrote itself. Book two, called Life After Felix, demanded to be written because some threads from book one called out for completion. Book three, Next Steps, began cold-bloodedly because two books felt wrong. Who writes a pair of books? And there was one big lesson I felt Sally needed to learn. And then there were all these threads. Do I assume all who pick it up have read one and two, or should I fill in the background? Or should I make it read like a standalone and ignore threads that are less important this time around? If I show versus uh, telling, if I show and write full scenes, it adds so much length. If I tell, it feels dry. Between us, I self-published both books um, and you can find them both on Amazon. All right, I'm gonna throw this to Hank because Hank has got a background in writing series. What do you think, Hank? How did you respond to this question? There, there, there are so many important questions in that question. So let me just see if I can take if I can take them one at a time. Um, bottom line, and not to ever forget, is that, uh, in my opinion, a, a, a book in a series has to be a fully formed entity that you, a beginning, middle, end, resolution, no loose. I mean, you could have 
let me say this beginning, middle, and satisfying ending, leaving no one, no reader wanting anything more. They have a fulfilling, satisfying experience. In a series, the problem is in a series that you get the you get the wonderfulness of having your main character is set, your milieu is set, the uh, objective of the main character is set, you have the setting, you have the sort of world that the character lives in that you don't have to come up with every single time. But what you don't have as easily is stakes because um, the mortality of the main character cannot be the at what's at risk in a series because he or she is going to come back for book two. So no matter what travails they go through, um, they're going to come out at, in, in the end and be ready for book two. So there are two there are two paths of a series. One is the actual plot of book one. And number two is the emotional journey of book one. So the plot of book one has to finish in book one. The emotional journey of the character doesn't have to finish in book one. There can be an open-ended relationship, an open-ended emotional decision that they have to make. You can think of so many things in our lives that take longer than a story to, to fix. So you have a main character who has a life. And in a series, you're taking a slice of their life that has a beginning, middle, and an end and telling me that. Then in series, in that book two, you're taking an, the next, essentially, the next chunk of their life and telling me what happens in that. In my opinion, someone has to be able to pick up any book in the series and get it. So your question is, how do you do that? And I think, think about going to lunch with somebody. If you went out to lunch with me, you would not, I would not have, you would not, I could say to you, guess what happened to me today? And you wouldn't say, I can't hear what happened to you today until I hear what happened to you from the beginning of your life until now. You don't need my entire backstory. So think about a series as a, as a, a, a book in a series as sitting down to lunch with someone and you're telling them just as much as they need to know to understand the current story. Sometimes that is never going to be super flashbacks. In my opinion, that's never going to be super long flashbacks. They don't have to know everything that ever happened to you. You know, you can just say something like, well, I'm never going swimming again after that last time when I almost drowned. Like that's all you, that's all you need to know. Or gosh, has it been, has it been three years since I've worked here? That's ridiculous. And then just go on. Um, so you can easily decide what to put in a series by asking yourself, what does the reader actually need to know to understand this particular book? Knowing that, that I mean, it sounds like from your book that it, you have to start at the beginning. And there are some series that you really do have to start at the beginning, but I think your writing will have more longevity if you can pick up any place in the series and, and feel comfortable with the character and the story. Yeah. Because my understanding, I mean, a lot of books in series, each one kind of gets a lower and lower readership. Um, so you yes, also because, have a problem with that. Yes, because people are, I often ask at events, how many of you need to read a series in order? Because I don't, I can pick them up anywhere. But there are yeah. people who diligently will never read book three until, they, until they've read book one. So 
you know, one of the things that's sort of good about that is that, you know, you, could, you constantly have something new for people to read so they can buy book three and then go get book one and two to catch up. But you are setting yourself up for potentially that diminishing sales because people will actively not buy book three if they have if they don't have book one and two. And I know a lot of agents will say that even with you, if you pitch a book to an agent, you shouldn't say I'm writing a series. You could say it has series potential. But the problem is they're only going to publish book two or book three or et cetera if the first book does extremely well and makes. Well, it's interesting when I when I wrote my I've written two series, one a series of four and one a series of five. When I wrote my first novel, um, the my publisher, my the person who was my publisher turned out to be my publisher asked me if it was a series. And I'm like, sure. Oh, I absolutely. I meant it to be a series, but I didn't, I meant it to be mm. a standalone. I meant it to be, I, I meant it to be a standalone. And that has served me well because you can pick up any, my Charlie McNally series or the Jane Ryland series. You can pick up any of those books in any place and totally understand a fully formed story. And I think that's really important to remember and not to give any spoilers in a in a in any of the books to any of the previous books. Don't ruin don't ruin book two with book three. And that's another thing to really be careful about. Don't give anything away that you don't want the reader to have known in case they haven't read that book. Yeah, I'll um, just jump in too and say, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, <clears throat> just as a reader of series, um, whenever my students, I teach a lot. Whenever my students ask me questions about how do I right? I'm always saying, well, go to the sources, right? So, you know, take your favorite series that are sort of in your genre, take a highlighter, get the paperback news version or whatever, and literally highlight in the subsequent books, the places where the author fills you in and see how they do that. Are they, they're probably not using scene. They're probably using what Hank just recommended, right? Um, I find that going to books you admire is a really excellent way to figure out how to do it in your own work, right? Yes, because different authors will do it in different ways. So Kate Atkinson in her, is it Jack Brody series? I thought it was called. Mm -hmm. I'm a big Kate Atkinson yeah. fan. I did find yeah. that later books, she would have to rehash so much or she chose to rehash so much in later books about the first books that I was like, oh my gosh. I mean, it was just this kind of long summary and I just, it wasn't the best Kate Atkinson. And, and Years ago, and I don't see it as much as I as I do now, years ago, there would be what we would call in newspapers a nut graph, where it would mm -hmm. just tell you exactly, you know, in one paragraph, which was often the same in every book, would give you a little bit of backstory that, you know, you know, since since Sally has been working here for 13 years, she's gone through 27 bosses, two boyfriends and three apartments in the Bronx, you know, and you just didn't it became so familiar that you felt that the person was just pulling it from each book and putting in the, in, in the next one. And it's to solve that problem. It's to, it's to solve the backstory problem. It's to solve the, you know, the introductory problem. But just think about if you're, if you try to read your novel through the eyes of someone who's never read it, are, are they, are they going to get the story? Do they need to know every little thing? They don't need to know every little thing. You know, you're in the, you're in the present story. And then, so in our chat, someone mentioned Elena Ferrante, the Napoleon uh, not series. And I don't think she does a lot of catch up with each book. She just goes forward. Um, and so, but with that series, 
I think you could appreciate each book on its own, but I think it would be better to start with the first one. Um, but then if you think of like Tana French, her series, uh, the, the Dublin Detective series, I'm not sure if that was the right name, um, you don't need to follow them in order at all. Uh, because she had there's different protagonists and she's picking up in different ways. So, Allison, do you think now this writer is seems to be questioning if she should even write book three or not and questioning, you know, how much how much telling do I do? How much? What do you think? I mean, I think if a project excites you, then you should write it. Um, and increasingly in this insane publishing landscape, um, I feel like the process has to be the the goal in a lot of ways right because you know we never know what's going to happen with our books we don't have control over what happens to our books if this project is exciting to you and in your letter this person's letter they said that they felt that sally's story was still needed to be told then to me that seems like enough impotence impetus to devote time to the project um so i would say go for it in that sense um you know and especially if it's if it's something that's been been you know in your mind you're thinking about it you're working through it that like that might be a wonderful exercise as a writer to really tie up that thread that you felt like you hadn't finished. I mean, yeah. think about this series that you, that we love, Kinsey Malone or Maisie Dobbs, and you fall in love with the character. That's what a series is about, is that you can't wait to be back with the character again. Um, and and that's, what's, that's what to keep in mind when you're writing a series. You know, what is it about the character's life that's so compelling? that it will be worthwhile for you to write it and worthwhile for readers to want to be with that character again. They, you know, ask yourself, and the question I ask myself every day in writing is, why do I care about this? Why, why do I care? And if, the, if, you, if you care and if the reader cares, then it's a story that needs to be told. If you're just doing it for housekeeping, because, oh gosh, you know, yeah. there's little loose ends and I guess I have to tie this up that's how the reader is going to feel as well. It's like, oh, she's just tying up loose ends. Why didn't she do that before? Yeah. And I would say also yeah. too, in, you know, in, in some fantasy series, you want to be back in the world, you know, yes. like that's why, like I love N.K. Jameson's work because I want to be back in that world, you know, as much as I want to be with those people. Yeah. Yeah. I think of Lu Louise Penny's um, series because, it, you know, it's off in this little teeny three pines town and the char characters are a little crazy. Um, and I found during the pandemic that I really wanted to be there in that teeny little town with those characters. Um, another series I recently fell into was Elle, her name is Elle Cosimano. Oh, yeah. Her first book was Finley <laughs> Donovan is Killing It. And I just found it delightful. I mean, it was just, and she's got this great sidekick called Vero. So I just ate those up. They, um, but they it, laugh out because, loud funny. They, yeah, she has a, a tremendous funny. voice, a tremendous voice. And I do think that that's, the El Cosimano series, um, and also by a woman called Kara Hunter, who has a, a series with of an ensemble cast in the Oxford, uh, England Police Department. And that's, you know, the ensemble cast is a wonderful thing to do in a series as well, because you can give different people the leading role and you begin to understand who the other people are as well. Kara Hunter puts, um, a list of who the characters are at the beginning of each book. So you know who you're talking to in a sort of artificial shorthand, but but that works as well. Yeah. And I do I, think fantasy I, is a good is a good way to a fantasy novel is a good way to check on backstory, as Allison was saying, because um there 
you want to be in the world and there's a lot of sort of accepting of how the world works in a fantasy. So, you know, if you say, well, let me look at the two suns and see S-U-N-S, let me look at the two suns and see what time it is. You don't think, what, two suns? How did it have two suns? I don't need to know. I don't, you don't need to know how there, how there came to be two suns. They're just are. It, it yeah. just is. And that's, again, in real life as well. Some things, you know, some people are, this is the cranky person and this is the lovely person. And you can tell that and show that in one sentence. Yes. With this with this project in particular with Elaine's, I worry that she's not really on fire about this third book. She talks about starting it cold-bloodedly and she's not quite sure how to do it. And and I, I, I'm, I don't know. So I feel like if the first two books, it depends. Did the first two books sell really, really well? And if so, the third book could continue that that energy. Or if you're super excited about it, you could continue that energy. Otherwise, why not start with a with a you know a brand new brand new horse in the race and um, start with a standalone book to give it kind of a fresh start and hopefully something that you're excited about. Okay. Um, I remember the just let me just interrupt for for one tiny second, and that is to say, remember that there's the plot journey. And there's the emotional journey. The plot right. journey has to finish in each book. The emotional journey doesn't have to finish in each book. And I thought it was so sweet. You know, you, she said, um, who's ever heard of two book series? Well, there are duets. It's fine. If something is over, it it's over. Don't force something to continue when it's not meant to. Right. Thank you. Okay. Uh, the next question comes from Anne. Here we go. Dear Michelle and guests, mine is a point of view problem. I'm writing a historical fiction novel with a teenaged protagonist in close third person. I've been working on this book intensely for the last two and a half years, sharing chapters with two different writing groups. Particularly since this may end up being marketed as a YA novel, I've been trying to write closer and closer third person. But every time I take out the she thoughts and she smelled, etc. A beta reader tries to put them back in. When do you finally accept you've gotten close enough to your narrator, I mean, your main character? I first want to make sure that people have a sound idea about what close third person is, because a lot of time it is confused with close third, with um, close limited, and they are not the same thing. So close limited means that you're limiting yourself to a, a particular person's thoughts and feelings and their story. Close third person, however, is a narrative distance issue. Um, and it's how close your narrator is or feels to your character. Now, no matter what, your narrator and your character are always, 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 always different. And this includes even in first person present tense. Um, your character is the one that is enacting in the moment. They are moving through the actual moment. And if you can actually think about you yourself having to narrate your moment-to-moment -moment actions at that moment of time as you do them, you will understand how actually impossible it is for the narrator and the character to be the same, okay? I might be able to begin with saying that here I am sitting and talking on the 7 a.m. novelist and I'm not being as eloquent as I wish I was and et cetera, et cetera. But I can't tell what's important to relate to you. I can't tell what can be cut out. I can't even tell where to start. I can't tell where to end because 
as a character, I don't know. Um, so the narrator is always going to be one step ahead and always is going to know what's important to keep, what's not important to keep. They are our guide. And that includes even in first person. Generally, uh, we're working in past tense. So that narrator knows even more about the story. Oftentimes, we'll know even the full story of the character and therefore can jump around in time and refer to the past and refer to other things that have happened in the character's life. So making sure that you know that difference. Um, the objective dramatic point of view is the most distant you can get from a character. And that's the same point of view that you'll see in a film or from a camera. Um, the objective point of view can't see inside a character's thoughts and feelings at all. They're hundred percent outside the person and we can only see what they do and what they say. The next level down is the omniscient. And the omniscient can get into the thoughts and feelings of your character. In general, however, the omniscient retains the third person voice, okay? Um, the closer and closer you get to your character, the closer and closer, it could be a, a closeness in time, um, a closeness in knowledge, but it's oftentimes a closeness in style. So if you think about, um, and you can look this up in, in um, John Gardner's uh, Art of Fiction, but he talks about in the objective dramatic, he says, it was winter of the year 1853, a large man stepped out of a doorway. Very, very distant, very objective. Then the, the omniscient, Henry J. Warburton had never much care for snowstorms. Notice how stiff that is. The narrative voice doesn't care, carry um, the emotion of the character who is stepping out into the snowstorm. And it's so distant that we actually refer to the character with Henry James uh, Warburton. Um, so we don't really know him well. We need, the, we need the J of his middle name and the last name. Then Henry hated snowstorms. Notice that is getting more limited. We're getting closer to Henry. We know who this Henry is. Um, and we're getting a little closer to his feeling about snowstorms. Um, now, when you get to truly third close, however, we're, the narrator is going to begin to disappear. So it sounds like this, God, how he hated these damn snowstorms. Now what's happening there is that the narrator is beginning to move out of the way and the character's emotion and experience of the moment is beginning to take over. So in true third close or in first close, and there is such a thing as first close, the narrator will seem to almost have disappeared and the character's voice, sensibility, emotion will be coming out to the front. Um, sometimes your narrator disappears to such an extent that we get into stream of consciousness. Um, but even with stream of consciousness, what sounds like we're just getting the fumbling ideas of the character that's completely unmediated by a narrator, it's still narrated. It's still controlled in some way. Otherwise it would be gobbledygook and you couldn't read it. So even Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce, if people think that's unreadable, it is still controlled by a narrator that's controlling something. Okay. Um, and Julia Spencer Fleming's In the Bleak Midwinter begins, it was a hell of a night to throw away a baby. You know, and so that tells you about the person, that tells you about what they're looking at, that tells you about the weather, that tells you exactly what happened. You completely get a scene, but it's yeah. not like in, you know, in, 19, in, June, in June 1942, there was more, more snow in New Hampshire than there had ever been before. You know, and notice how close we are to that because we're not even, we're, we don't need to be introduced to the situation, the character. It's assumed that we're already there. It's almost assumed mm -hmm. that we're already inside it. Yeah. 
Oh, that's what a great line. Um, a just a few other things, and I'm going to pass this on to Allison. I would recommend that you choose now whether it's a YA novel or not, because that's really going to determine the voice of the book. Uh, YA in middle grade uses a lot less narrative distance than adult does, okay? Um, if this doesn't make any sense to you, the narrative distance thing, it's very complex. So I would look up John Gardner's The Art of Fiction or another book, Adam Saxton's, uh, Adam Sexton's Masterclass in Fiction, um, to look at them, explain it. Because if you're not using this as a, an adult fiction writer, you're really missing out. Um, okay, Allison, how else did you respond to this question about Close Third that she's bringing to us? Um, well, you know, actually, one of the things that really stuck out at me was her discussion of the filtering language. Um, that she thought, uh, she felt, it seemed like, right? Um, and that is something I have to work on in my work also because I tend, to in, I tend to insert that filtering language in the first drafts. And in general, we're told as writers that we don't want that filtering language. We don't want that distance. Whenever, um, you know, she mentioned the beta reader um, <clears throat> who's putting back in that sort of filtering language. So a couple things there. First of all, aren't beta fish the ones that fight each other in the tank? Um, right. So I think that um, often when um, we have readers, people can be even great editors, and I'm guilty of this too, can be really good of at giving solutions when what you really want to know is what's the problem. So mm. what is the problem that that reader is trying to solve by inserting that filtering language? Now, that might be just a deficit on the reader's point of view, like they're not a great editor, or they might be responding to something in the text that they're trying to solve by putting this language in that that's not necessarily the correct solution to that problem. So, but it does sound as though that reader is responding to a psychic distance problem. Um, and, you know, when it comes to, I think, I think one of the ways in which a close third and psychic distance come in, you know, sort of butt heads is in sort of thoughts when the character has thoughts. And I have a lot of students who write work that is in close third, and then we get the character's thoughts in italics I find that, in, in not necessarily even the use of the talent, just the, the intrusion of the thoughts, I find very jarring because it seems so different than the voice of the narrator, right? In a way that doesn't necessarily bring me closer to the character, we're already in close third. So to have those thoughts feels like it takes me out, draws attention to the fact that there is a narrator in a way that um, takes me sort of out of the story. Um, and often too, those sort of thoughts or feelings are a character's way of, responding to the um, the closeness that the narrator is imposing on the story, right? So the narrator is telling something about the character. The character is like, isn't ready for the world to know. And so jokes about it, right? Um, and that sort of defense mechanism of humor, which I employ, you know, hourly in my daily life, um, <laughs> is I think can be, can take you sort of out of the story. And I haven't fully come to terms with like why I have so much trouble with, thoughts intruding on stories. Um, but just to sort of bring it back to uh, where we are, um, which is which is that um, it's possible that the reader is responding to the fact that maybe this should be in first person. And Michelle, you were talking about if it's gonna be a YA novel, I mean, YA novels are almost always, let's, you know, contemporary YA, are almost always either in, in first or close third. And maybe this book wants to be in first person. I mean, it might not be a bad way to think about that. Yeah, and try it out. Hank, what do you think? Um, I so there are a couple of things when I was when I was thinking about what Allison was talking about, uh, putting in the the limiting words of she thought and he thought and she smelled. I think sometimes 
we put those in for rhythm and for and to to keep the reader not confused to make things clear there's a way if you don't it, what you're trying to avoid is confusion and i think what allison is alluding to is maybe also that the beta reader just didn't understand it that they were lost in the story and maybe it just calls for some clarification mm. um sometimes when i'm revising i put my uh, software on read out loud and have my word document read out loud. And you can hear when you hear it in the audio version, you can hear from the narration when you need it and when you don't need it. Um, and it's really helpful. You, it's, there's a, you can hear when it's extra and you can hear when you need it. It's almost sometimes for its own punctuation, you know, he, he thought, or he, smelled it's clarifying the other thing is when i'm when i say to myself when i'm writing who's telling me this wait a minute who's telling who's telling me this um when i feel that there is an external force that is telling me something that the that the character wouldn't know or wouldn't think or wouldn't put there but i'm but it's externally i me the author me the narrator is putting that in um, that's when I, that's what I take out as well. Um, when it starts sounding like um, you've taken, well, it's hard to it's hard to explain. But who is telling me this is a good question to ask yourself. Is it coming from the character, or is it the the writer externally placing a phrase in in order to make the sentence be clear? <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure that made any sense. It's really early. You are, you are because I do think. Um, if we're working with a, a much more distanced narrator, like an omniscient narrator, um, we might be confused of where that information is coming from and who is smelling and who is seeing and, and et cetera. Um, or if there's some authorial intrusion and we therefore distrust, mm -hmm. uh, the the psychic space that we're in and by the way narrative distance and psychic distance is is used interchangeably usually um then that could require the um the inclusion of the uh filters again though again i agree with you know sometimes beta ringers are just wrong um and sometimes editors are wrong i i refer to i'm not going to name the writer but uh, a best-selling writer in our from our ni program her editor started adding in all these that's that she'd taken oh. out and didn't quite understand that you she didn't actually need them um and so i was like oh that's just so so there's some people that just are not you know i think about this is this is terrible but there's some people in the business that you know, it's like on it's like on the voice when you see people and they get up and they're like, I I teach singing, and then they sing a song and they can't sing a note to save their lives, but they've been running workshops and singing or something. And you're like, oh dear, what's going on? So there are people. I do think a lot of people in our business are very very good or extremely good, but there are people that just kind of sell themselves as as readers and editors, and they they're not quite um, or or they can be good but not right for your piece too. I mean yeah, that happens right. too, right? And, there's, or, and also, I mean. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. personal style, personal yeah. style and personal yeah. preference, you know, um, and it, you're just hearing from one person. So you just take that bit of information and tuck it in your head and decide whether that's relevant to you. Decide whether that's good information for you or whether that's not good information for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I always think it's dangerous to have 
that one reader have so much power over over your book, no matter what. Um, Allison, have you dealt with having trying to get to dealing with narrative distance issues or, or any problems with it or or? Oh my gosh, constantly. Yes, absolutely. You know, and I always, um, I do really love close story because it does feel like you're having your cake and eating it too, in the sense that you're getting that the voice of the character, which is very exciting. And I think also very, um, very popular these days to sort of be, have a, have a story be more voicey. And I'm into that. Um, but um, at the same time, you, you know, you get that narrative distance. And so you're not stuck with a character whose choices are dubious or whatever. But I do think it is a tough balance to find. And I think her, you know, her final question is, how do you know when you're close enough to your character? Um, and I want to like answer with, you know, the, the line from when Harry met Salon, you just know the way you know about a good melon. Um, <laughs> but I think you, yeah. I think you, you, you you fumble your way there, right? And until you find what distance it is. But it sounds as though the the author of this letter feels as though something is not working, that she hasn't found the correct distance. Um, and, and then I would say what you want to do is try a different point of view, see if that sits better, right? Try first person, see if that sits better. Um, I mean, otherwise, I think it's a constant dance on a tightrope to find the correct distance. Yeah. I wonder you're, you're writing about a real person, you know, mm-hmm. you're not you, you're not you writing about someone it you are the character you are the character. So sometimes if you just sort of, and I know you just, I just sort of try to channel being the person, you know, when I, you know, when the when the character is doing something, how does how does it, how do you be doing that? And then just write that. And I, I, I laughed about the the italics, Allison, because I, I do that all the time. Um, and I have and I try to stop myself from doing it. And I have decided that I'll use italics in internal thought when it's for emphasis, but not just every not just everything that someone. Why thinks. do you Why are you trying to stop? I it might be annoying. You know, it might be annoying to see what is the reason that sometimes someone's thoughts are in italics and sometimes they're not. Because if you put every thought in italics, then your book is super italicized and that's incredibly annoying. And I and I and I don't like to somebody was um, Benjamin Dreyer. I asked him about italics and he said, why would you tell me how to read something if you need italics? Right. If you need italics, you're probably not writing it well enough. Uh, And that has haunted me ever since so I use I think sometimes too you know thoughts and italics are telling me things I already know as a reader and that might be my part of my annoyance right I know that the the character doesn't want to hear what's being said to them so the fact that they think like you know like oh mom's so stupid right or whatever like I know that that's the reaction already and so I feel like maybe I'm being hit over maybe that's part of it yeah yeah like like if you say I hate you he said he felt so frustrated you know (laughs) yeah yeah. So, so you you could be telling us things that we already know, things that are not, are not surprising, things that are not adding another layer to the text. We did talk about interiority a lot yesterday. Um, so some of this does blend into interiority. It might be an issue of being just understanding a, a character enough to being able to offer that interiority and often that interior life in a way that doesn't feel jarring, that doesn't feel false, that doesn't feel... Um, dull and boring. And I do think like Allison said, it is like knowing it's a, whether it's a good melon or not, because you can feel if you just don't have a character, 
And there's been characters that I've given up on actually, because I just haven't been able to get, I just haven't been able to get that melon. I haven't been able to get it. And I, I beat at it and I do all sorts of things to it. And it just, it just doesn't work. So it could be also just a problem of getting to know that character. Yeah. Um, all right. We're going to have to finish up, but with these, we've just had these two top authors. So I hope you're really glad that you got to hear from both of them and, uh, you can find everything we're up to on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcasts so that we can find other listeners. Okay, I am going to go back one more thing. Allison, do you have any final words about breaking through your writing obstacles, what we're dealing with this month? Yes. And this comes completely from, from my own personal situation of, of struggle on the struggle bus right now. Um, you know, I think, I think um, there's sort of two schools of thought, right? Like, like butt in seat, right. Or take a break. And I actually think that either of those are very valid ways to break through some problems, either like sit down and work through it or like take a break and go for a walk. Please don't do what I'm doing right now, which is both. So I am both, I'm like bottom and chair, but then not actually taking a break. Um, so I'm going to, as I say, I vow that I'm going to either sit down and work through it or I'm going to take a week or two off. Yes, I do. I know Kelly Ford and some other students of mine, they repeat um, from Goethe that I say all the time, um, do not hurry, do not rest. Um, that doesn't mean you don't necessarily take a break, but it could mean um, that your book is kind of always simmering in the back of your mind. Yes. Um, I've been having trouble going back to another book that I want to revise. And actually about 3 a.m. this morning when I get all my good ideas, um, I had a, a, a new idea about it because it's just always there with me, even though I haven't been working on it. Um, yes, it's very exciting. So and hopefully the idea actually works. And it wasn't just one of those, you know, 3 a.m. like, oh, I'm a genius ideas, which then huh. turn out genius ideas but you know how it goes um hank any final words about breaking through your writing obstacles yes i think i think being stuck in writing is fear and your brain sometimes just seizes up and you start thinking i'll never be able to do this i can't get this this isn't going to work and your whole cycle of, of thought becomes focused on how you can't do it and i would say to you <laughs> It doesn't matter. It's just writing. You're just writing something. It doesn't matter. It's not a test. You're not going to hand it in. And the teacher, forgive me, Allison, the teacher is going to say F or A. And then there's this moment of truth about it. It's a process. You're just going to write your words for the day. And they may be really good that day. And they may be really bad that day. But just go on and you can fix it later. You can fix it later. And when you look at your words that you wrote today, when you look at them tomorrow, they'll feel different to you. So what I do, what I specifically do, is I take a, a little Apple timer, which I'll show you right here. It's a little Apple timer and I turn it to 34 minutes and I promise myself I won't do anything but write for 34 minutes. I've done this for years. I promise myself, no, I won't get a Diet Coke. I won't look for the mail. I won't start the laundry. I won't get some crackers. I'm just going to write for 34 minutes. It has to do with focus. Just focus on the book and realize that if it were easy, everybody would do it. 
but it's not easy. It's never easy. It's hard. And that's why we, that's why we choose to do this. So why are we complaining when it's hard? If it's not hard, you're not working hard enough. So just say to yourself, this is hard. I'm a good writer and I'll fix it tomorrow. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Okay. Thank you so much, you two, for your time and energy and being with us. Everyone, um, I would check out their books. Absolutely wonderful books. These two are very different writers, actually, but they're both, I would grab up all of their works. Um, you will not regret it at all. So thank you all for joining us. I hope you're able to get back to your writing desk. Try to enjoy yourself a little bit. And if you're not enjoying yourself, at least set that timer for 34 minutes. I believe. Okay. Good luck and good writing. <laughs>